You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. music means it's time for the davis garden show this is don shore and this is lois richter on a bright beautiful well they say it's cloudy but i see sun davis I'm looking, day i'm looking out the window and i have shiny leaves on my oak tree and water all over the ground we got half an inch of rain in our area and that pretty much looks like the amount all around the sacramento valley at least on the valley floor a nice steady rain got things wet washed all the dust off the leaves washed all the ash off the leaves finally ended the fire season in Northern California, thank goodness, and gave enough water to penetrate the soil to about four to six inches. It's an important data point. Important data point. Not a full-on irrigation type of rain, but the, the pattern has changed, and the trees in the area are giving some great fall color right now. This is the beginning, the beginning of our fall color season in the Sacramento Valley. Hey, Don. He's it here. doesn't make sense. If a half an inch of rain <laughs> fell, how can it get the soil wet for four inches? Okay, good rule but of thumb. not compute. Good rule of thumb. One inch of water penetrates many soils to about a foot. I learned that way back in soil science, and, you know, it's a pretty reasonable uh, generalization, an inch per foot. That's uh, X number of gallons, 0 0.62 gallons per square foot is an inch of water, rain, irrigation, whatever. And uh, that's about what it does in a normal soil. It depends on the water retaining capacity of your soil. If you've got heavy soil that's got real dense like clay or, or a lot of silt in it, the, so the water tends to spread out more than go down. If you've got sandy soil or soil with things like rock in it, then it tends to go down more than it goes out. But it's a reasonable rule of thumb. That's kind of a useful thing that I find when I'm talking to people about their trees in August and September and why their trees are looking stressed when they've been giving their lawn a half an inch of water at a time. You know, they're running their sprinklers for let's say 30, 35 minutes, and they only do that two or three times a week, and the lawn looks okay, but the trees don't. Say, well, a good old rule to remember is one inch per foot of depth, and so you're only watering the top few inches of soil when you water your lawn that way. Your tree's not getting what it needs, and so it's a good, useful guide. It's not 100% across the board. depends on your soil texture, but uh, this was a pretty good rain, and it's the start of the rainy season, finally. Ordinarily, we get about an inch of rain in October, and average a couple of inches in November. We had zero in October, and uh, we were halfway into November before we got an actual rainstorm. So here's hoping for a wet winter, but uh, you never know. Temperature today is 63 degrees as we record this broadcast on November 18th, mostly cloudy tonight and dropping down to 41. The date of the broadcast itself, Thursday, will be 60 degrees and partly sunny. The storm is moving out of the area. Partly cloudy Thursday night, dropping down to 39 degrees, Friday 62, Friday night 38, Saturday 62 and sunny. Oh my goodness, that will be a very busy day at my garden center. Saturday night mostly clear and 38, Sunday 60 degrees, and you see the pattern here, and Sunday night is gonna be 39, and Monday mostly sunny, 62. Monday night partly cloudy, 42 degrees, and Tuesday mostly sunny, 66 degrees. Not any more rain in the imminent forecast. 
So this is a one-time thing, and uh, let's hope for more to come. Night temperature is not getting anywhere near frost, but we have had two already in this area, two frosts, uh, neither of them severe or significant enough to do any damage to even the things I expected, honestly. The coleus on my front porch still look great, even though I have a lovely picture of a sparkly white frost out in my meadow. So we got to maybe 31 degrees, 31 and a half degrees that night, and the plants that were closer to the house had the protection that they needed. So it is the middle of November. Yep. Well, it's actually getting towards the end of November. And what can we still do? What plants, vegetables, or flower things, what can we still do now as far as putting stuff in the dirt? Here in the Sacramento Valley, USDA Zone 9, we're in Sunset Zone 14. So those of you in Sunset Zones 8, 9, 14 to 24 can keep planting vegetables. You can plant cool season vegetables right on through the winter. I answer this question a lot because of people who are new to the area or unfamiliar with this fall gardening season that we have. There's not time now for the, as we've said for the last few weeks, for the big headed things, you know, a cauliflower or a broccoli to form a plant and make a large head. But if it's one of those things you use more for the sprouting or for the small heads like broccoli rob or some of what they call the sprouting broccolis, those can go in fine. The asper brock, one of my favorite new plants. It's not a cross between asparagus and broccoli as people think. It's a broccoli whose stems resemble asparagus in texture. So it's an, another of the sprouting broccolis. All the leafy greens, all those things that you like for salads, lettuce, arugula, uh, beet leaves for greens, uh, Swiss chard if you want to, you know, for cooking or for eating fresh. Uh, kale can go in, bok choy can go in right through the winter. And spinach, although I should mention that there appears to be a chronic spinach shortage this year amongst the wholesale growers. So you may need to start your own from seed or keep looking around to see what your garden center has this week. Uh, we've been really hit or miss on spinach for the last couple of weeks. It's kind of the basil of the fall this year in terms of shortages. But all those leafy greens, all those things you like to stir fry or put in your salad can go in right through the cold weather. Things like kale are actually improved by cold weather. The flavor is enhanced by frost. So these are plants you can put in right on through February, actually. Most of my customers who are really serious salad eaters who like to grow their own keep planting a few plants every two to four weeks. So they have new ones coming on. They're harvesting leaves off the others. They may cut a whole head if it's gotten to the size they like. And they just continue a, a pot or a plot of leafy greens right on through about March. Weather starts getting up into the 80s at that point. Most of those plants, the flavor quality diminishes and they start to get a little tougher and a lot of them get the trigger that says it's time to flower so they're no longer going to continue producing but then we're pivoting over to the summer vegetables so all those things can still go in you can also of course keep planting flowers uh, winter annuals like pansies violas stock calendulas dianthus the pinks which you can plant all season sweet alyssum which you can plant all season Palludosum daisy, a great little white daisy, cyclamen, all of those can go in right through the cold weather. We don't get cold enough here to do any damage to them. Uh, really, the issue we have with them more commonly is periods of heavy rainfall may damage the blossoms, but the plants will be just fine. You didn't mention anything about root crops like carrots and beets. Are yeah. they done? No, you can plant those. They'll take a long time to germinate. Carrots planted, even if you soak the seed overnight, as we always recommend to re remove some of the inhibitor from the seed coat, in these temperatures may take as much as a month to germinate. So go ahead and plant them and just have something else in that bed with them so you don't have to worry about the fact that they're not coming up. 
and then beets uh, will come up and will develop and you can eat the leafy greens as you know as long as you want to and then the, the bulbs or, or the root I should say will form up in February to March so or as, as late as April you can continue harvesting those into the warm season we plant beets and carrots pretty much year-round here but their flavor is better and their development is more uniform and reliable in the cooler season when the moisture is more consistent also I should mention onions Bare root onions are in at garden centers that sell them. Get them quick because they go very, very fast. And um, I mentioned last week we sold all of our red onions in 72 hours. Well, good news, I got some more. Uh, but you get those in quickly and they will, you can plant them very close together if you wish. We have this conversation all the time. You can plant them two to three inches apart if you want. That's not room enough for the bulb to develop, but you may want to let some of them grow for several weeks and then use them steadily in cooking, pull them out so you're thinning them, and then let the remaining ones be four to six inches apart for the onion itself, the bulb to properly develop in the late spring. Uh, you may need to leave room for some of them, like the Walla Wallas, which are very, very popular here, uh, until almost July in your garden. So keep that in mind when, when you choose your location for them. The regular onions should be out of there by the end of May or early June in time for you to put in either some of your later tomato plantings or your pepper plantings, squash, things like that. So they rotate beautifully in this area with a lot of the summer vegetables. You said that onions were bare root, and bare root is a term that I hear from you every year. Yes. And every year we have new listeners. So could you just describe what bare root plants are, yeah, when they come in, and what you do with them? Yeah, it's a bit of jargon that we just toss around in the nursery industry as though everybody knows what it is. But I mean, it's, it is literal. It's a plant that you're buying where the roots have no soil on them. I mean, that's what it literally means. So when I buy onions bare root, they're not the most common usage of the term. They've been grown in a greenhouse. There's a grower down in Acampo near Lodi who grows tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of seedlings for farmers all over the Sacramento Valley. His main business is tomato plants, actually. You see those fields of canning tomatoes going in from transplants, not from seed. He grew those. He's sending a million plants out to a farmer somewhere in Yellow County or Solano County. They take machines and, uh, and fast-moving crews, and they are bare root. They were grown in seedling trays in a greenhouse, and then the soil is just washed off, and they take them, and they pop them right in the ground. Uh, they, that way they can grow them very, very close together. That's not the most common usage of the term bare root, but his onions are grown the same way. So they come in, and they're in boxes in my garden center, and they look basically just like the green onions you, grow, you buy in the grocery store for, you know, for chopping into stir fry, except that the roots aren't as clean because they still have little bits of soil clinging to them because we don't care. We're not going to be eating them that way. But they basically look like the same plant. And as I've said before and with customers, yeah, you can plant those. You know, you buy a bundle of green onions at the store, plant some of them. It can be fun. They'll grow just fine in your garden. And in point of fact, they will make an onion at the end of the season. It's usually a sort of a round white onion that's not huge and rather it's rather pungent, but yes, it can be done. So look at it that way with the onions. It's just like the ones you buy, you know, for, for uh, recipes at the store. Bare root is also a way that they grow most deciduous fruit trees that you buy. They plant them in sandy river bottom soils. The biggest bare root fruit tree growers are typically along some of our California rivers, uh, such as the Muckalumni River, river over there east of Modesto is where most of ours come from. And uh, they use those soils because the roots develop quickly and evenly. They can plant the plants very close together. They're growing those fruit trees 
a few inches to a foot apart in the field. They have the rootstock there, they bud onto it, and then they let it grow, and they look like giant hedges of fruit trees. Then they go in with a machine that digs them up, and because of the way the roots have distributed in the sandy soil, that's very easy for them to do. I have pictures of the machine harvesting of bare root fruit trees. It's fascinating to watch. Tens of thousands of fruit trees are then dug up, carefully washed off. All the soil is washed off the, the roots, so obvious, obviously this is done when they're dormant, and obviously can only be done to trees that go dormant. So we don't do it to citrus, we only do it to the deciduous fruit trees. Then they're sorted and they're kept in cold storage. Not really an issue at the time of year they're doing this. One of the more miserable jobs in our, in our industry is the processing of the bare root fruit trees in these giant, very cold um, like airport hangers practically. Sort them, tag them, bundle them, and then ship them out to nurseries all over the United States. And they ship them at different times of year depending on when your local bare root season is. If you're in San Diego, California, they're going to arrive, as they do with us, in the first week of January because we're, we're cold, but we're not buried in snow. <laughs> we're we're uh, cold enough to keep them dormant for several weeks and to put them in bins in our nursery. Usually we use uh, livestock bedding type of shaving. Some nurseries use sand. And you'll go in and there's just you know, rows and walls of these dormant trees. And in San Diego, as an example, that bare root season is pretty short because in January, it can be in the 70s in San Diego and very sunny. So the trees break dormancy very quickly. So your bare root season down in, in say, coastal Southern California may be very short. The nurseries may not be able to hold them for very long. And a lot of nurseries have gone to just potting them up as soon as they arrive simply because they have such a short season. In our area, in the Sacramento Valley and places like that, our bare root season goes from first week of January till about the middle of February, even late February if the weather is staying chilly enough to keep the trees dormant. As soon as they start to bud, blossom, or start to grow, they have to get into containers. And then it's a big scramble for every garden center to go ahead and get them into pots. Because of that, Many nurseries and garden centers, wherever you're listening, may just have them already in containers when you go in there. A lot of them have skipped the step of putting them in bare root bins because they don't want to have to reconfigure their whole garden center for this one six week period and then, then pot them up. We still do them bare root and so do a lot of other nurseries. It's not just fruit trees that come that way. Vines, grapes, for example, berries. Um, and some interesting plants that are more of perennial vegetable type things like rhubarb, uh, asparagus, artichokes, horseradish uh, come in bare root and they just arrive as a bare dormant plant and then we all decide at our level what we're going to do with them, whether we're going to put them out on display dormant for you to buy them at a lower price or take a moment to pot them up and have to charge you a couple extra dollars for the pot and the soil. For example, at my nursery, the rhubarb, when it comes in, breaks and grows immediately. The California temperatures are sufficient that rhubarb thinks it's spring in January. So we just go ahead and pot them as soon as they arrive and they push out right away. And so we sell them that way. Asparagus, on the other hand, lies there looking like dormant little octopus until about April. I mean, they can, they can stay dormant and we get hundreds of them. So they can stay dormant well through the winter, even into the early spring. And so you can typically find them still bare root uh, in as late as March. So as a customer, would it be best to special order bare root things and then when, when you come and they come in and you call and we can rush right over there and get them and put them in the ground right away, is that the best way for us, a customer, to do it? 
they need to get into soil right away. Um, and that can be complicated in years when we have a lot of rainfall. Because we'll tell you here on this show that you shouldn't dig a hole when it's too muddy, okay? You're not supposed to go out and dig when there's been a couple inches of rain or else you're just slicking the surface and creating you know, a bathtub and the roots will struggle. And so if it's rained a lot and the bare root season arrives, we are very accustomed at our nursery to putting sole tags on bare root trees and holding them in our bins until you can plant them. Uh, if you do take it, uh, the nursery will typically put it in a bag with some shavings to keep the roots moist. And that gives you a few days to deal with it. A couple days at the most is my personal opinion, but a few days is acceptable. The most common reason for bare root trees to fail is the roots dried out in storage, whether at the garden center or more typically after the customer takes them home. If it's rainy and cold, we'll just hand the tree to the customer. Roots bare, we won't even we'll give them a bag if they want it. We'll say, you're going to plant this today? Great. Fine, take it home, everything's good. If it's raining, you know, an inch of rain every five days and the soil is too muddy, we'll hold it or you should take it home and stick it in a pot with some potting soil temporarily or whatever, pile some leaves on it, whatever it takes to keep the roots moist. Healing it in is an old term for what people do with bare root trees. People who are really into this kind of thing will have a bed somewhere on their property where there's a slight trench and they just lie them down there and they heap soil over the roots to hold them for a few weeks if they have to. Uh, whatever it takes to keep the roots moist. And the other thing to remember is there are a lot of plants that never go dormant and uh, we get this question over and over every winter, uh, such as citrus. Well, they're a subtropical, they're an evergreen plant. No evergreen plant is bare-rooted in the industry. So you go in looking for fruit trees, they might have citrus trees, but they're not coming in bare-root. It's not, it's not something where they're gonna wash all the soil off the roots, that would be bad for it. So bare-root applies to deciduous, hardy plants typically. And it's traditionally done with fruit trees, but also some shade trees and some ornamentals. There are nurseries, I think, in the eastern part of the U.S. that sell things like Rose of Sharon bare root because it can be done. We sell lilacs bare root. Uh, so there are some flowering plants that are done that way as well. Although I have to say the trend in the industry is more away from those. Uh, still mostly fruit trees in the business. Okay, so it is November. Fall has started. I know that sounds really silly to other people, but you know, I was driving around this weekend realizing Oh, the colors come in, mm -hmm. and now we have beautiful color on our trees. And, and that sounds so strange to people back east who are used to it having happened much earlier. But now that the leaves have changed and things are starting to drop, there's getting lots and lots of leaves lying on the ground. Yes. Now, I don't personally have a lawn, so I don't have a problem with that. My leaves just fall down and they work their way in between the bushes and plants and there they are and they That's great That's i never great. rake them up yeah. but if someone had a lawn what would you recommend they do with all the leaves that appear in the fall well this is becoming an issue in many municipalities uh, davis is unique in that it picks up the leaves for you out in the street with this machine called the claw it's quite possible if this show is rebroadcasting in five or 10 years that that will be an obsolete comment. I mean, there's, this is something that is done in some areas where the city sends around its machine that picks them up and takes them away and hauls them off to, uh, to be composted, we hope. Um, a lot of places you're putting them in dumpsters and sending them away to landfills. And that's a terrible, terrible thing to do because leaves can rebuild the soil beautifully. They're a wonderful thing to add to your soil if you have a way to do that. If they're small enough and conditions aren't sopping wet, you can actually mow them right into your lawn. 
Now this became a big controversy a few years ago on different blogs and Facebook groups because people would advocate it for very strongly and others would post pictures of you know, lawns covered with eight inches of maple leaves or whatever where you have deciduous hardwood trees. Um, so it's a let's be practical. If you can do this, if the leaves are small enough or if your mower can accommodate it and you're not in a small lot with a large tree that has, let's say, giant sycamore leaves or mulberry leaves or something like that, mowing them is great. Mowing them into the lawn is really a wonderful thing to do. It is the equivalent of lightly mulching your lawn. And this is assuming you have turf. It's a, one of the simplest, most practical things you can do. You might have to go over them a couple times to break them up. But it's a really one of the simplest ways to get more nutrients into your soil, to improve the texture of the soil, and improve the growth of your turf. So that's if you can do it. Let's say you have a Chinese elm or something, you know, the little leaves that just filter right down into the grass. Don't worry about it. When you mow, they'll just disintegrate. But I do understand, living as I do under an enormous sycamore tree, that it would bury my lawn if I had one right under that tree. And mowing them would be... I, I have a powerful mower, I have a brush mower, but it would still be bogging down on them. So let's be, as I say, let's be practical about this. So the other thing you can do is just take those leaves and spread them out someplace where there's bare soil. That's one of the best things you can do. And one of the reasons I strongly urge this is that there are particular beneficial insects that need that habitat. One of the most important is the soldier beetle, the leatherwing beetle, which is a voracious aphid feeder. The larvae live for a year plus at the moist interface of mulch and soil. The moist interface of mulch and soil. So I have had these insects fully controlling aphids on my roses forever. Uh, I've never, they'll show, aphids will show up in the spring at both houses that I've lived at, where I had great big trees. I didn't know I was doing this. I, I learned later that this is what I was doing. I would take the leaves of the mulberry trees at the old house and the sycamore leaves at this house, and spread them out in bare areas between shrubs or out in the vegetable garden in parts that I wasn't planting that, you know, the winter season is generally not as space consuming as the summer season. So I'd just pile them on the ground. Rain would come along, they'd disintegrate. Particularly when I did it near the shrubs and where you have, like you do, where you have perennial plants that are growing and blooming, you're not gonna get in there and rake them all out. It creates this mulch layer on the soil that is moist. And you're encouraging this particular beneficial insect that is one of the most effective aphid predators. Who, can, who could not want that? But most people don't know that this is what's going on. These are the kinds of cycles that are going on in your yard when you're just allowing leaves to compost naturally in areas. It does require some moisture. So this isn't gonna work if you have a completely what we call xeric or low water landscape where you have bark or gravel or decomposed granite surface and you have to rake all those leaves up even if you left them it would get dry in the summer and it wouldn't provide suitable habitat for that particular predatory predator insect but you might have another place in your yard a corner under your fruit trees for example where you could let leaves and things disintegrate steadily and where you could provide a little extra moisture so that's the key is they need that moist interface of decomposing organic material and the native soil. It's also just a way to build. Now that it's starting to rain, we don't have to worry about the moisture part. Right. And when you say move them off your lawn into under the shrubs, you don't mean chop them up. You mean just rake them and put them someplace, right? Yeah, now aesthetically that bothers some people. I do remember that Eric, one of our regular listeners uh, in Southern California with a gardening service, sent me some pictures that I used in an article a few years ago where he would rake them off a lawn 
mow them on the driveway to disintegrate them. And then I think you just spread them back out on the lawn because they function at that point as, as mulch. And it'll look more, if you do that, you can certainly make a more attractive appearance. If you're a commercial gardener, persuading your customers that, that you know, dead leaves around their shrubs is going to be good for their yard may be challenging. So you might have to adopt a different strategy. There's almost always some corner where you could do this and add a little moisture. Add a little bit of, you know, have, if you've got micro sprinklers on your fruit trees, put one over that area as well, because you do need that moisture to benefit not just these kinds of beneficial insects, a lot of other things that come into your yard that need a little extra moisture as well. My only concern with our trend towards very low water landscapes is that we're drying up all those surfaces and we're taking away important habitat. But it doesn't have to be 100% that way. Just as we tell you to mulch your yard, but there's some beneficial native bees that need bare soil, leave some bare soil areas, leave some mulched areas, have some moisture on the mulched areas. And remember, bark isn't mulch really. Bark is okay for shading the soil and for walking surface, but since it's not decomposing, it's okay for a lot of areas in your yard. Bark is fine. I don't want people to stop using it, but it doesn't retain moisture particularly. So having an area where you have actual composting things is going to be beneficial as well, and it needs a little extra moisture. So I have a thought that sort of combines birds and soldier beetles. Okay. And that is, if one puts that compost out in the corner or out on the side yard where you can see it from the kitchen window, which is even better from my point of view, and then you put a bird bath on yep. top of it, yep. and you run one of your little micro sprinklers up there, on top of the bird bath, so it is spraying everything around it and the bird bath. You have just created not only great habitat for your insects, but things that the birds will just go crazy for. They love taking a bath under a shower. You could probably even just use a dripper. I mean, because if you let it overflow a little bit, that'll create habitat nearby. Uh, if it's if the a ground around the bird bath is moist, that would be probably sufficient for some things. So. We just a little bit of a segue here. We had a uh, customer whose 10 year old is really into Egyptian studies right now. They're doing at home learning, as you know, and uh, got kind of taken by this by the interest in that and suddenly wanted a papyrus plant. Okay, papyrus being one of the key plants in Egyptian lore. And uh, we managed to to track one down and it was the most charming note we got that she sent back after we delivered it. She didn't tell the child when it was going to be delivered. And so it arrived and the child's answer was, um, thank you for fulfilling one of my dreams. Oh. <laughs> Delivering a papyrus plant. Yes, it was very sweet. So now we have the question, all right, papyrus are pretty big plants. What do you do with one? I have a couple of them on my property and papyrus, the regular one, Cypurus papyrus, in this area is about a 10 by 10 plant, right? You can put it in the ground, it'll be a dramatic focal point in your yard. It's like having a big bamboo plant, basically, and the same kind of dramatic texture and contrast. And that's cool if you wanna do that. But if you don't have a place in the ground for it, a really simple thing to do with it is put it in a pot, or the pot it came in, and plunge that pot. This is a, a riparian plant from the River Nile. It is quite accustomed to being underwater for its whole life, if necessary plunge it into a bigger pot, a bucket, a tub, a half barrel, or even better, 
do as I've done, go out and get a livestock trough, you know, one of these things you can buy at the feed store and keep it in that. And it can be full of water or the water can drop down all the way practically till there's almost none. You can fill it back up. It's a riparian plant. It can take those conditions. One of the reasons I like having that on my property, and I have two of them where in each case a papyrus plant has now completely filled the livestock trough over several years, is that anytime I walk by there, there's dragonflies sitting on the papyrus. There's typically small birds going through the papyrus foliage because it's really dense and gives them protective cover. I know for a fact that at night, certain animals come in and make use of the water. I made sure that there's mosquito fish in there, which you can get from your local mosquito abatement district. Locally, you just email fightthebite.net and they'll bring them to you free. And that's all you gotta do. And I know they'll live through anything, so I don't have any mosquito problems. And at one point a turtle showed up in there. I mean, you can create these funny little habitats, but having a little bit of a water garden or a moist area will encourage a lot of beneficial organisms. I mean, I'll go beyond just insects. Dragonflies, of course, are insects. They eat whiteflies. Dragonflies are voracious whitefly eaters. If you get a lot of them in your garden, you won't have a whitefly problem. And the simple way to get a lot of them obviously is to just have moisture because that's where they their their larvae develop and then they like to sit near water and on perch on particular types of leaf structures so just doing and this is, can be in a small yard i mean they don't have to they may live in a small lot i don't think they have a giant backyard but a half barrel full of water with a papyrus in it uh, maybe you can rig up some little beach for butterflies on there somehow as lois has described before where you have a shallow area of damp sand or something like that and you can start getting all kinds of beneficials it doesn't require you to have a full-on pond this can be portable it can be simple and it can be taken apart if you lose interest and just some comments about that i have in the past had water features and we did two barrels with a a, a spout that it, it it came over one went that I only spout and splashed in the other one, and then I had a pump to pump it back up. So we had a little waterfall there with the two barrels. It was very nice. One thing to think about when you're doing this is if the container that you have has vertical sides and the water is not up to the absolute edge, put a stick or something in there that sticks down into the, the water but also comes up over to the edge of the thing. And the reason I say that is I was very sad one morning to go out there and found, find a drowned mouse. Yes. It had managed to come, it was looking for water, it got in, but it couldn't get out. Put a ladder, put and, a ladder for the vermin, yep. Well, no, just a little, just a little stick. It also means that the birds can hop down the stick and get as much or a little water as they want because you know you don't want to be too big when you're when you're a little bird. Yeah. And so yeah. Also mentioned, you mentioned a, a, a water feature with a pump, and I know lots of people who have gone through this process. I've had them. The pump is the problem, invariably. Uh, in my experience with those, no matter what brand you get, they last a year. You can clean them out and they, they plug up again. I strongly suggest for home gardeners who just want to get a nice little area like we're talking about, just make a static you know, a, a non-moving thing. If you want fish or something like that, get someone, get a professional to come in and do a proper pond for you. But the pumps are, will drive you crazy. I spent a lot of time when I worked in the botany department taking apart cleaning pumps and putting them back together, yeah. which you have to do over and over again. So I'm just talking about a really simple little water feature. Just remember, anywhere you have standing water, don't breed mosquitoes. Good news is mosquito fish are unbelievably hardy, can survive iced over pond, can survive anything mosquitoes can survive. So they can be quite effective. 
And uh, almost anywhere you live, there's probably a mosquito abatement district that will take care of that for you. You can either go pick up mosquitoes or in the Davis Woodland Sacramento area, they'll bring them right to your door. So you don't have to worry yeah. about that. And if you don't want to use a pump, but you still want to you hear a little sprinkling once in a while, well, put one of your microsprays over the pond so that it, it splashes into it. It sounds nice. The two that I have, actually, uh, what I have is a drip line filling one of them automatically when I'm watering it on other things. And it overflows, and that helps to keep it keep the water clear. And I've made a point of putting it where the overflowing water from it drains over to a big stand of bamboo that I have, and the bamboo benefits from that. So it's getting it's watering the nearby plants as I run water through it. The other one, which has a big papyrus plant in it, I have to fill it about every three weeks with a hose in the summer. This is not a difficult job. And honestly, if it went dry all the way to the bottom, the papyrus plant would be fine with that. I'm mainly filling it because of the other water plants that are in there. Both of these started as small ponds with other things. There was a water lily and things like that. Now they're each of them a large dramatic papyrus. Hey, there's lots of great programming here on KDRT. One of the longest running shows is the award-winning program called Davisville. Davis, California, is full of interesting people, ideas, connections, and events. On Davisville, host Bill Buchanan presents stories from in and around town that involve the Davis community. This is a three-time winner of Journalistic Excellence Awards from the San Francisco Press Club. That's Davisville with Bill Buchanan, which runs Mondays, 5.30 to 6 p.m. live and replays one, two, three times during the week. So for the schedule for Davisville and all the other great programming, programming here at KDRT, go to cater.org and check the program guide. And his is one of those shows that he always did pre-recorded. He was doing that for a long time before this pandemic started, which means that he was on top of the whole thing. I don't think he missed a beat no. when we suddenly had the station go down. Yeah. So, and he has archives of his shows. Yes, the, uh, the talk programs at KDRT, such as this one, are archived in perpetuity. The music shows are only archived for two weeks. So. Mm -hmm. The uh, Yolo Audubon Society has a mission, which is to foster an appreciation for birds and other wildlife through educational programs and field trips to bring conservation issues to public awareness and to work toward preservation of Yolo County bird life and habitat. For information on all of their activities, just visit Yolo Audubon. You know how to spell that? Y-O-L-O. A-U-D-U-B-O-N, YOLOAudubon.org. And later on in December, tune into this show and I will be announcing the time and date for my bird talk. As I do most winters, I'm going to do a bird talk through the Arboretum. And Winter Birds usually is a slideshow in a room on campus and then we go out and we look at the birds. Yep. Well, this year, we're not going to gather together that way. So my plan, I haven't quite got it worked out yet. I'll tell you about it later. But my plan is to do a Zoom presentation and encourage people to watch that on their laptop or their iPad or their phone out in the wilds. And after the presentation's over, we can have a joint little meeting going on there. And people can go, well, this is where I am and this is what I'm seeing. And they can show us, you know, the wetlands or the arboretum or wherever they are, whatever they're looking at. So I think it'll be an interesting variation on the usual talk. 
So stay tuned and significant point, you can probably join in from anywhere in the world that you're listening to us. That's right. I'll right. give you the details in December. Okay. So we had a really cool email from a junior high school student and I always love these. Uh, this was directed to me. This was a business uh, um, directed to my business because they want plant suggestions. And I think I sent that to you. Do you have that in front of you? I do have that. Okay. And it said, do you want me to read it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. It says, dear Mr. Shore, my name is Jacob. A ninth, uh, we're, we're getting rid of the, the uh, surnames just to be polite. A ninth grader at Harper Junior High School. Our advisor, Mr. M, suggested that I contact you for information about possible plants for gardening, a garden we hope to plant. The area has very harsh conditions. I've attached two pictures of the area. One picture shows how it looks currently, and the other is a very basic animation of what I envision for the area. The area has the following issues. One, we will be adding compost and perlite to offset the alkaline soil. Two, the area is very hot, very little shade, and the asphalt and solar panels reflect heat to the area. It is also prone to wind. So the area is desert-like. And three, we are in the process of figuring out irrigation. <laughs> so, would you be able to help us choose a variety of plants? Because we cannot have the plants shading the solar panels, which are on the ground. The plants can't exceed waist high. The limbs can't overarch onto the asphalt because of fire safety requirements. We are thinking of waist-high foliage along the fence and ground-level plants like succulents in front of them. We also have boulders, which we can place throughout the area. We would appreciate any information you can share with us. Thank you, Jacob. Yeah, and that was extremely well done, honestly. This is most of my conversations with people about plants for a particular site involve way more back and forth before I even know what the parameters are. And aside from not, not only, aside from sending a picture, uh, he described all of the site characteristics. So you know, obviously kudos to this, uh, what is he, ninth grader? <laughs> who figured out how to ask a question efficiently and effectively. And the picture shows, this is, looks like a strip of soil alongside a parking lot. I mean, that's pretty much what they've got with a sidewalk next to it and a chain link fence. And then on the other side of that chain link fence, as he notes, are solar panels. So no trees, nothing that would cast shadow on the solar panels. There are some serious constraints there. I'm gonna back up to one of his comments about adding compost and perlite to, what did he say? To affect the soil pH, uh, alkalinity. One, most of the plants that we grow in our area, the pH or alkalinity or acidity of the soil is not an issue. So I wouldn't be concerned about affecting that. You don't need, you only need to talk about that in Davis woodland area if you're choosing to grow what are called acid loving plants. And it's a complicated subject, but that's basically camellias, azaleas, rhododendrons, dogwoods, Japanese maples, blueberries, things like that. For those, perlite and compost, uh, perlite won't do anything for that. Compost would have some impact, but particularly we generally add soil sulfur to bring down the pH temporarily and we keep adding it for the plants that really need it like the blueberries. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about the fact that the pH of the soil is slightly above seven, which undoubtedly is, and that the water you're applying all throughout the Davis Woodland area is about 8.1 because the municipal water supplies keep it that way. It's We have slightly alkaline water for other reasons. Perlite is not something I would add to soil out in the garden or landscape area. There's no need for that. Perlite is added to potting soils to enhance the drainage. 
it would be probably a needless expense in this particular situation. So skip that. And then you don't need to turn in compost, uh, but it's perfectly good, in fact, beneficial ultimately to the soil to keep it on the surface around the plants. So get everything planted in the native soil, backfill your holes with the native soil, and then if you wish, if you have a source of compost or even you know, ground up tree uh, arborist wood chips, that's a great surface mulch, things like that, that'll help to retain moisture and will gradually improve the, the texture of the soil. But most of the plants I'd suggest for this spot are not things that would care much about that. I would be looking in a harsh environment like this at things that can take drought, and heat and wind, and those are generally not plants that have a, a higher need for special soils. These are plants that are from the Mediterranean, from California native plants, South African plants, and Australian plants, and mostly focusing on woody plants. So while I send him a list, um, you or anyone listening can go to redwoodbarn.com, uh, my business website, and there are articles there that I wrote during the long drought we endured in the first half of this decade. And uh, most of my articles were about drought tolerant plants and landscaping with natives and landscaping with non-native low water plants. Those have lots of pictures. And so for people who are just getting started on this, I steer them towards that. And there's a page that says, Don's articles about low water landscaping has links to all of them and has a whole lot of pictures on it right there. So that can get you going in terms of plant selection. I sent him a quick list of some plants that are particularly popular for this, and uh, just briefly, it's things like manzanita. Well, they're fussy about overwatering, but really nice if you get them well-established. Artemisias, which we have native and non-native ones. Coyote bush, one of the toughest native plants in California that draws beneficials. Not terribly exciting in its own right, but a good thing to have as one of your sort of backbone plants. Butterfly bush does great here. Um, I would suggest some flowering things like flowering quince, and they're okay with drought and they'll give you some nice bloom in the late winter. Rock roses, not native here, they're Mediterranean natives, but they do great in California, give a lot of bloom. I have rock roses now that I water once a month during the summer. Uh, buckwheat is a native. Look at the Australian plants, they're grevilleas and westringias, and if you want some good examples, head over to the UC Davis Arboretum, and the Australia-New Zealand section has been well planted now over the last few years with many flowering shrubs that are native to Australia, which has a climate, has many climate zones very similar to ours and similar drought issues. So the grevilleas and the westringias, particularly the grevilleas for the winter and spring bloom and the fact they strongly attract hummingbirds. Lavenders, can't beat lavender for a low water landscape and rosemary, which goes very nicely with lavender. And for rosemary, I like to use the upright form like Tuscan blue because it's a big, substantial plant in the four to six foot range and has these beautiful blue flowers in the wintertime. Olives, not the trees, but the miniature ones, the dwarf olives like Little Ollie, there's a couple other varieties. And then I especially want to mention the whole genus Salvia, the ornamental sages, which have so many types that they're too numerous for us to even go over all of them. But in a landscape like this, I would focus on our California native species, such as the Sonoma sage or the Cleveland sage on one end or the other. These are big plants. They take like six feet of space and then get some of the ones, and they bloom in the spring primarily here, and then get some of the Southwestern natives that bloom in the late summer and fall and intersperse those with some of these other plants. So those are some of our backbone plants for low water landscapes, very heat tolerant, very drought tolerant. And I'll you know, throw in things like Texas Ranger, you know, there's other plants that would certainly fit. I have a landscape much like this that I did along our county road about five years ago uh, when we had the shop put in and the bulldozers took out everything that was there. And I thought, 
okay, I have a great new opportunity. Plant some low water plants. And I have plants from four continents in that particular landscape. The first, I ran a drip line, simple half inch drip line. Each plant has one to two emitters, depending on how big the plant is going to be. Each emitter is a two gallon an hour output, higher output typically than a lot of people use. And the first summer, I ran that once a week for at least a couple hours, sometimes a few hours. And now that we're five years into it, I ran it three times this summer, total. Each time I ran it for several hours. One instance, as we were going into the heat wave in August, I ran it overnight. So I gave each plant maybe 20 gallons intentionally because we were going into some extreme heat. That's all, three irrigations total during the course of the summer for plants that range from California native to Australian native to South African things. I've even got an oleander in there and a crepe myrtle you know, a couple of other things. And I will mention, by the way, that of all the plants in there, everything has succeeded very, very well, except the crepe myrtle looked like it wanted more water during that whole process than all the other plants. So will you see that one recommended for low water landscapes? It is low water, it is drought tolerant. They grow better and they bloom better with more irrigation. I actually took the hose over there, which is hard to do. It took 200 feet of hose. <laughs> gave it its own watering a couple times during the summer. And I'm seriously considering replacing it with something even more drought tolerant. The most successful and attractive plant in this whole landscape of mine has been Toyon, the California native shrub, Heteromely arbutifolia. I have both the red berry form and the arboretum's yellow berried form. The only reason I didn't mention them for this Harper project is that my plants in five years are over 10 feet tall. So they would be too big perhaps for his, their particular project. And I also didn't mention Ceanothus, simply because most of the varieties I can think of either get too tall or spread too much for this situation. But those of you doing low water landscapes where you have more room, like six feet of space for a plant to spread or can take the height that some like Ray Hartman would get, could certainly consider our native California lilac. Well, waist high is a lot shorter than a lot of the things you talked about. There, so you know, they're gonna have to be careful to make sure they get the the variety of that plant that stays low enough. Yeah, Grevillea alone is one example. There are 400 plus species and cultivars in the genus Grevillea, and many of them, I have a whole hedge of Grevillea on my property, the variety Pink Pearl. It's about 15 feet tall and about 15 feet across with no pruning. And I'm gonna assume that nobody wants to be pruning this thing. That's right. Uh, so it should be a, a zero maintenance once established. So I wouldn't do that variety, but there's a variety Noeli or uh, Rosemarinifolia, which stay more compact. So you, do, you need to do a little research on your varieties. As we get to Salvia, for example, the genus, the sages. Our native ones, I have a Cleveland sage that's 10 feet across. I have another one, the uh, Pozo Blue, which is eight feet across, but only three to four feet tall. And it's fairly open, perhaps down at one end or the other of this bed. So it might be that some of the more spreading plants could be there, but don't create a maintenance hassle for, this, for the school district. Bring the janitors and the landscape maintenance people in on this project from the start, because they'll be able to tell you what they're willing to do and, and not willing to do. And for irrigation in a project like this, all I did was a half inch drip line Mine happens to run off a nearby orchard and I have an on-off valve for it. So when I was running the orchard, I could turn it on or off as I chose. And that's been sufficient. You don't need um, a full-on uh, automatic irrigation system if someone is willing to turn this on manually every week for the first summer, every two weeks for the second summer and so forth and be able to turn it back off. The only issue you have in a public area is that it needs to be hidden. 
It, you can't just have drip lying on the ground or else it's vulnerable to damage and vandalism. So it probably will need to be buried. Now, if they want to put in a full-on irrigation system on a timer and all that kind of stuff, that's fine. But I do find that people who do that tend to run them too often for the types of plants we're talking about. One suggestion I would have for the folks who are working on this, Jacob and whoever his team is, is to go over to the Arboretum and there is a garden and it's right across from where the horses are at the, at the vet school. So that's, that's the garden I'm talking about. And it is uh, a, a variety of amounts of water, but there's some very dry areas there. Look at the plants. You can see how tall they are. They're labeled. So you can find out exactly what you're looking for. And then uh, sniff them. Take, do, you know, rub your fingers on a leaf and just smell them. Because as a lot of people put in rock rose, not realizing that it is a very, very potent smell Pungent. to it. Pungent, yes. Pungent. Try Artemisia. <laughs> try, try Artemisia. I mean, I yeah. Have I had power. I like the smell of it, but it's very strong. Yep. And as people brush up against it or step on it, um, odor is something to be to be thought about when you're making these plants. Sure. I am very impressed with Jacob's letter and with his thoughtfulness. And I hope that when it's done, he'll give us a report back and tell us what happened and send, send us pictures. Pictures. Yep. No, this is a this is a great project for a school, and I like to see these kinds of things. And I think that it'll be a very low maintenance, low water planting. Bear in mind. My experience with planting with schools is that there's fairly significant loss rates and you can't let that demoralize you. I mean, when my kids were in elementary school, we as a nursery and, and parents went over and planted garden beds and we'd go back and 50% of the plants would have been trampled to death, not even intentionally, you know, it happens. And so we tended to focus on things that we knew could re-sprout, <laughs> things that we knew were quite vigorous. Uh, this is a little less trafficked area from the looks of it, but anytime you're planting in a public area, things happen. So try to choose some plants that are pretty close to indestructible. And he mentioned succulents, which I think are a great addition here, although they obviously don't take traffic very well, but it doesn't look like there'll be a significant amount of traffic here. The key there for anywhere you're listening is since there's a vast array of succulents available at any garden center, wherever you are, and a good portion of them are not hardy in the winter in some places, and many are, you should focus on a little research to decide which ones will be, will actually work wherever you're listening. So in his case, for example, sedum and uh, Delosperma ice plant and uh, hen and chicks, the echeverias in slightly a little more shade might be better for some of those. Uh, those are tough and reliable and grow anywhere. Uh, whereas if you put in anything that's a crassula or euphorbia, you know, it's probably going to be damaged. And you know, some of the agaves are hardy and some of them are not. And some of the aloes are hardy and some of them are not. So you have to do a little research on that. Agaves are extremely trendy right now, interestingly, in the nursery industry. Agaves and the mangaves, which are hybrids between agave and manfreda. And uh, these are very cool and very interesting. But some of them are hardy here in the Sacramento Valley and some are not. So do your homework before you just pop one of these rather expensive plants into your new landscape. Not entirely sure they'd fit with the look anyway, but the sedums and the ice plants and the hen and chicks and things like that should be reliable right along the edge or along the front of the landscape. Okay. Um, I'd like to go off topic for just a moment and just do a little refresher on dormant spraying, because I know we did that recently, but 
It was a little complex. Can you just give us a simpler synopsis? Yeah, it's a, it is a complicated subject. And it's funny that for years, nurseries have all been making the same boilerplate recommendation, which is, you know, spray something, copper sulfate or whatever, um, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Valentine's. And I've been saying this for years. I also went in to look at extension publications because we have UC Davis right here. And I had been a student there. So I'd head over to the offices of the different departments, pomology and veg crops and whatever. And they would have racks and racks of their currently updated peer-reviewed extension publications on the wall. I've noticed some slight conflict between what we were recommending and what was in these extension publications that were geared towards farmers who are looking for greater efficacy, effectiveness on their particular pest problem, on their particular crop. So people who start looking into dormant sprays get kind of confused. It's a little overwhelming and it seems like uh, the materials have changed and they can't quite figure out what to do. So here's the really simple dormant spray recommendation. It's one is where you just take a liquid copper of some sort and you mix it with a dormant spray oil that you buy. It's labeled for that purpose. You don't make up some kind of oil out of your kitchen cupboard. You go buy a dormant spray oil. You mix those together in your spray tank or your hose end sprayer. And you spray the tree very thoroughly to the point of runoff, which means you're drenching every part of the tree. That's the tricky part for a lot of home gardeners. I can tell you they'll take about two gallons of spray mix to cover a medium-sized tree that you've trained and pruned in sort of a normal manner. And if you've been summer pruning it and keeping it small, like we recommend, it may only take about a gallon of spray to cover that tree properly. You spray them while they are dormant. And a good rule of thumb is to do that around late November. And again, right before bud break, which in our area is in February. You're mainly spraying for peach leaf curl. By far, that's the number one thing people are concerned about. We've talked about it before. The sprays aren't that effective, and uh, they only work when it's done right before the buds break, but you can spray then if that's your main concern. And then shock- And it's only peaches? And nectarines, yes. Peaches and nectarines only get peach leaf curl. If you have curled leaves on another type of tree, it's something else and the spray won't be effective on it. The other thing you're often spraying for is shot hole fungus, which causes little holes in the leaves, particularly on plums and apricots, and does affect the fruit. It actually causes some scar tissue on the fruit. It's still edible, but it's not as attractive looking. That one, the spray is done in November, typically, at least according to the last extension publication I looked at. So the Thanksgiving and Valentine ones are probably the crucial ones. And the most important, if you're worried about the leaf curl, is the one that's done in before Valentine's Day, first or second week of February. The oil is added because it has some fungicidal property, but what it really does is it helps to smother overwintering insects that might be on the tree. And also it helps the spray material stick to the tree. So that's the main reason you're putting the two things together. The old materials that used to be out there, copper sulfate, lime sulfur, haven't been available since about 2010. So if you're looking for those, you're probably not gonna find them, at least not in the United States. And the new materials are much less effective for peach leaf curl. If it rains within 24 hours, you should probably do it again uh, because rain, even with the oil in there, is likely to wash it off. So you'll need to do it again. Uh, I will mention that some of you may be in an area where you're getting real problems with this and you want to use some other material. Well, you can look up chlorothalonil, bacanil, read the label. I wouldn't use it, but read it if you want to use that. It is labeled for peach leaf curl. And the main issue I have is that most people don't have an effective way to spray their trees. 
They have a little tank sprayer that they pump up and they stand there. And if the tree has been trained in the more traditional manner, they're spraying up into the air. So it's blowing back down on them and blowing everywhere. And they're getting some of it on the tree and maybe not getting very good coverage. So aside from the fact that the new materials are significantly lower in active ingredient than the old materials were, um, the manner in which most people spray them isn't that effective either. So one little footnote, I'll just go ahead and say this and then we'll move on. I have many, many customers who never spray their fruit trees for anything and get very, very good results anyway. They get plenty of fruit and the fruit is very high quality. So even though the tree may get leaf curled terribly on the leaves, at least in our area with the temperature and moisture conditions that we have, the fruit is generally not affected and the yield is generally not affected. The things you're thinking of that are making your fruit unappealing, like the worms in your apple, that's not a dormant spray. What you're doing here, what we just talked about, has, does nothing for that. It doesn't do anything for the coddling moth that gets into your apples. That's a different conversation. You start that application right after the trees bloom. And if you have an apricot and you've had a big problem with brown rot, the dormant spray is less effective than spraying when the tree is in bloom. Read the label very carefully, but if you live in this area, you've probably noticed that when the almonds are blooming, because almonds also get brown rot, the growers are out spraying. They may be out spraying in the middle of the night while the trees are blooming in order to get good coverage and not damage the bees. They may be using a helicopter if they can't get into the orchard because the soil is too muddy. They do that while the trees are blooming. We call that a post-dormant spray. So if brown rot on apricots is your big problem, then you want to spray a little bit differently. So the basic rule, copper mixed with oil, sprayed at Thanksgiving-ish, sprayed slightly before Valentine's-ish, is going to give you pretty good control of some things, but it's not absolutely necessary. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore and Lois Richter here at KDRTLP and 95.7 in Davis, California. We all know that trees clean the air, they sequester carbon, cool the atmosphere, provide habitat for wildlife, make our cities more comfortable and livable. Tree Davis is a local organization that plants trees, cares for them, helps neighborhoods and homeowners choose trees, provides lots of information about how to plant and care for them. To help Tree Davis with their mission, visit treedavis.org for more information about volunteer opportunities, to make a donation, and to get great planting and tree care advice. That's treedavis.org.